Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever and rich, with a comfortable home and happy disposition, seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence and had lived nearly 21 years in the world. I'm Harriet. And I'm Ellen. And this is season four of Reading Jane Austen. For this season, we're reading Emma, beginning with chapters one to five. And just a reminder that there will be spoilers in our discussions. Emma is an intricately plotted book, and if you haven't read it before, we'll be giving away things you might not want to know in advance. But before we start talking about this week's chapters, we should give a quick summary of the publishing history of this book. Well, according to Cassandra, on the 21st of January 1814, Jane Austen began work on Emma. Mansfield Park was published in May 1814, and then she finished writing Emma on the 29th of March 1815. Which means she finished writing it during the period when Napoleon had escaped from Elba during his hundred days, but before Waterloo. Yes. All of her books up until then had been published by Thomas Edgerton, but for Emma, she decided to send it instead to a different publisher who was called John Murray. And The exact reasons aren't known, although it does say she was upset by the fact that Edgerton, her previous publisher, didn't get any reviews of Mansfield Park. And one of the things with Murray was that it was the kind of thing he was good at. And also he was actually best known as a publisher of not so much of novels, but of travel books and of poetry. And he published Byron and also George Crabbe. But in addition to this, he owned The Quarterly, which was one of the two great reviews of the time, which they were all reading in in Mansfield Park. (laughs) Okay. The Quarterly was the Tory paper. Yeah. And the Edinburgh Review was the Whig paper. Okay. Well, he owned The Quarterly, the editor of which was the man he asked to read the novel for him. Um, This was William Gifford. And Gifford gave his report on the 29th of September saying, of Emma, I have nothing but good to say. Emma was then published in December 1815 and then it had a public review in the quarterly written by Walter Scott and it was also very positive, I believe. It's a charming review. I think that's the one where he says he can do the big Bow Wow stuff but he can't begin to do the sort of delicate stuff she does. And, of course, the other thing about Emma we know from Jane Austen's letters is at one point she said that Emma was going to be a heroine whom nobody but herself would like. She's been proven wrong about that because a lot of people other than her like Emma. Yes, though I must admit that until this read, I didn't particularly like Emma. Um, neither did I, but I have, again, in this this close read, I've also come to see a lot more good points in Emma than I have before. Previously, That I found they've always been a bit overshadowed by her bad points. Mine has come slightly differently because what I've come to do is see her as an almost an enjoyable comic character, whereas previously I thought she was this awful snobby thing. <laughs> Anyhow, before we start properly talking about the book, let's begin with our 100-word summaries of chapters 1 to 5. So you can go first. Miss Taylor, Emma's governess of 16 years, has just married Mr Weston, and Emma and her gentle valetudinarian father are feeling forlorn. Their neighbouring landowner, Mr Knightley, visits them. He and Emma have a lively dispute. Mr Weston's history is given 
and at an evening party arranged by Emma, Mrs Goddard, the proprietor of a boarding school, introduces her illegitimate parlour boarder, Harriet Smith. Emma befriends Harriet, but is concerned by her interest in the farmer Robert Martin and decides to make a match between Harriet and the Highbury vicar, Mr Elton. Mr Knightley tells Mrs Weston that Harriet is a bad influence on Emma, boosting her self-conceit, but Mrs Weston disagrees. Yes, well, I've actually covered pretty much the same points as you have in my summary, but I'll read it anyway. Emma Woodhouse's former governess, Miss Taylor, has married Mr Weston, who was previously married and has a son, Frank Churchill. Emma is sitting with her father when their friend Mr Knightley calls. Emma tells them she made the match between the Westons. Emma becomes friend with Harriet Smith from the local school. Harriet is illegitimate, but Emma believes she's a gentleman's daughter. Realising Harriet is attracted by a local farmer, Emma criticises him. She wants Harriet to marry Mr Elton, the vicar. Mr Knightley and Mrs Weston talk about Emma's friendship with Harriet. She approves of it and he doesn't. Oh, well, that is so much better. <laughs> yeah, well, I did shuffle things a little bit because the stuff about Frank Churchill comes in the second chapter, not in the first, but I oh, just no. made sense well, to Oh, no, well, no, no. This is the first of her books that starts with the heroine, front and centre right from the beginning. But on the other hand, it also gives you all the backstory you're going to yes. need. Go back to what we were saying at Mansfield Park with these novels that Jane Austen has written from the beginning are so different at the beginning Mm. from the muddle she got into, particularly with Sense and Sensibility, whereas what we've got in this book, the first three chapters, is this wonderful introduction. In the first place, every single character who is in Highbury at that time, I think except probably Mr Cox, and Mr Cole is introduced. Mm. They come in and we know who they are. There's not a sense of anything being pulled in. Mm. So she's created the whole of Highbury in three chapters. But then also, since the book is made up of one overarching marriage plot and a whole lot of mystery plots, or they're mysteries to Emma anyway, and we go along with Emma, Well, all those are also introduced. Right in the first chapter, we have Mr Elton mentioned and Emma is going to find a wife for Mr Elton. Yeah. And that's how that chapter ends. Yeah. Which is a hint of what's coming. But then, you know, another thing that she does, and this is what keeps this from being just an information dump, she tells you a little bit about it. And then she introduces something about Mr Woodhouse. Chapter one is entirely about the household, about Emma and Mr Knightley and Mr Woodhouse. And then chapter two, there's the background to Mr Weston and everything set up for what's going to be the Frank Churchill plot. And then we suddenly get a sort of charming bit with Mr Woodhouse and the wedding cake. Yeah. Then chapter three... We're moving on to the second set of people from Highbury. And then we have the charming one about how he wants them to have nice things to eat, but how he tries to stop them (laughs) eating them. And so you've got that wonderful creation 
which just flows as narrative. Mm. But actually, though, it's the sort of the planting of stuff that yeah. I find fascinating. And it's not really till the end of Chapter 3 that we start moving into the first of these, we call them little mystery stories. Mm. Do we call them Emma's blunders? <laughs> anyway, into the first of them yeah. with Harriet being introduced. Yeah. yeah. And then we're on our way. The other thing I get with Emma different from the earlier ones is there's so much more about the village because Highbury as far as I can tell it must be smaller than Meryton because it doesn't have assemblies yes. but it's probably bigger than the village in Mansfield Park because but oh yes we, we learn so much about so many people in this village in a way we just don't in the others and it just kept reminding me of Elizabeth Gaskell and Wives and Daughters and also probably Cranford, although I'm much less familiar oh, with Oh, yes. Cranford. Oh, no, even more Cranford. Well, the whole Miss Bates and Mrs Goddard thing is what Cranford's like. Yeah. But, you know, this is the only one of her completed works that has this whole village picture. You're probably getting it a bit in Sanderton, but it's a, a very different kind of community. Yes. But this is, you know, she said in one of her letters to her niece about writing about three or four families in a country village. Yes. This is really the only one where she does write about three or four families it in a country village. It gets close to that with Mansfield Park has got a contained cast. Well, it's got two families in a village. Yeah. Three if you count Mrs Norris. Mm. But you've just... The village really plays such a more important part in this than in the others. And that was why when I started reading it this time and reading it really carefully, I started to try and make a map of all the houses in Highbury. Then I thought, this is ridiculous. Someone else must have done that. So I went on the internet and I found a Jasna article by Penny Gay from the University of Sydney. And it had a map of Highbury that she had done in the mid-1980s for her students. And all I can say is she must have done it a year or two after I did her Jane Austen course at Sydney Uni because I'm sure I didn't get this map. And it's a lovely map, and I will put a link to it in the show notes. Oh, look, I'm completely convinced by that map. And it's in my mind now. Mm. And, you know, when they say, oh, they went to Wixell's Farm, oh, yeah, that was there. Um, Mrs Goddard's was round there. Yeah. She's taken bits from the book and she's looked at sort of where, what houses they pass on the way from point A to point B. And when you look at the map, you do realise even more from reading the book just how many families in the village you know of. Compared to Meryton, all you really know is Aunt Phillips. And Mrs Long. Yeah. As I said, this is such a, so much more of a village picture than we've had in any of the others. And Some of the village people we learn more of, some of them we learn less of, but we learn so much about what's there. There has been a sort of commercial group have been living there. I mean, the Coles have been there a while, the Westons have been there a while. Mm. Though Mr Weston seems to be the only one left. You know, so you get these really handsome houses like the ones that Mr Perry lives in, Mr Cox. You know, you've got professional men, Mm. professional families living in some of them. Yeah. And obviously you've got other ones like the shops which let out... Mrs Mrs. and Miss Bates are living in rooms above a shop. But that's the other thing I, I was a bit confused about. It says that the village of Highbury is part of the Domwell estate. I'm assuming everyone in Highbury Village is paying rent to Mr Knightley. No, well, the picture I came to with this was that you've got the Donwell estate, which has belonged to the Knightleys or to somebody they bought it from. 
but that over the years they want a bit of spare cash so they'll sell this bit to that person they'll sell that bit to this Uh person and so that's where their liquid cash can come from And so, you know, you get people like whoever the ancestors of the Woodhouses were, did they move in with, say, their money by themselves, a lovely piece of land, but didn't bother to buy a farm that went with it? Yes, because it does say that the landed property of Hartfield is inconsiderable, so their money comes from elsewhere. And we don't know what. Yeah, so Hartfield is part of Highbury, but on the edge because it's described as a notch in the Donwell Abbey estate. And then and we've got another notch in the Donwell Abbey estate, which, which is Randall's... Yeah, a little estate adjoining Highbury. And yet Randall's originally probably was part of Donwell Abbey. Going back to pre-1500 mm. was Donwell Abbey. Yeah. So then the main thing that happens in Chapter 1 is that Mr Knightley turns up having walked from Donwell Abbey, which is probably quite a hike, to be honest, Yes, because Donwell Abbey is is a mile outside Highbury. But I love this picture of Emma congratulating herself that she made the match, and Mr Knightley saying, well, you didn't really, you just thought it would be a good idea, you didn't actually do anything. (laughs) Yes. And then she sort of laughingly defends herself, and what we have is an introduction of the relationship between Emma and Mr Knightley, and we can see it's a sort of Beatrice Benedict plot. I don't think it's a Beatrice Benedict plot, but what I do think is right from the start you get this banter between them. You get the fact that Emma is always just a little bit more over the top when she's talking to Knightley. That she's semi-trying to provoke Knightley. You know, the sort of boasting that he gets irritated by. But he also enjoys it. You can see that they're both enjoying this banter and it only gets problematic when Mr Woodhouse misunderstands. Then they have to, Emma quickly has to say, oh no, of course, I was talking about myself, not about you. Yes. (laughs) Chapter two is mostly about... Mr. Weston, and then Chapter it, 3 is where it introduces Miss Bates and Mrs. Yes, Goddard. Yes, that's right. You know, you're getting different groups. First of all, the Woodhouses and Mr. Knightley. Chapter 2, the Westons, and then Chapter 3, we're moving on to Mr. Woodhouse's circle. Yeah. But anyway, then once we get to Chapter 4, we're jumping into what's going to be a major stream yeah. of the whole thing, the relationship between Harriet and Emma. Yeah. And that is not just connected to the first of these little mystery plots, but it runs right through. It's still there in the very last chapter yeah. when we discover what Emma's fate is actually going to be. One thing that does fascinate me about Harriet is her illegitimacy. It's just, it is an absolutely known fact that she's the natural daughter of somebody. Yes. Nobody knows who it was. Everyone knows she's illegitimate. And yet, even before Emma took her up, she was just totally accepted as part of the school, as part of the society. There doesn't seem to be anybody sort of pulling their skirts aside when they walk past her. She's just accepted. I mean, it fits in fairly straightforwardly with what happened to Colonel Brandon's ward. Yes, he he sent her to school. She was off with friends in Bath. So I guess, you know, this stain of illegitimacy that, gets referenced later in the book, at least in this country society, it seems to be much less of a stain. It's obviously going to be a problem if she marries 
that's the thing that Emma is continually thinking. Will they mind she's illegitimate? Oh, no, Mr Elton wouldn't mind. There's nothing in his family. My family might marry someone who's <laughs> illegitimate, yeah. but it won't bother the Elton. Yes. And, then and of, of course, course it does. Yeah, it totally does. But my reassessment of Emma... I really didn't like her before. I thought she was bumptious. I thought she was self-important. But this time round, instead of thinking this awful girl who's going on about how superior she is and being so toffee-nosed about everyone, she isn't. She's just this girl who thinks she knows all about her position in society and really hasn't a clue. And this, I think, starts coming out in Chapter 4. When she started telling Harriet, if you're my friend, then this will be all right. You're too much above Mr. Martin to marry Mr. Martin. You're at Mr. Elton's level. Most of this with Emma is probably her interpretation of books. What does she know of county society? Mr. Woodhouse doesn't go out to dinner anywhere beyond Highbury. Mm. She's not going to dinner parties. She's not going to balls. Mm. I mean, she would be perfectly acceptable in the society the Bertram girls went into. But there's no way she's going into that society at this level in the last sort of four years since she was 17. Emma has not really moved much beyond Highbury. Yeah, Yeah, Emma is the richest of Jane Austen's heroines and yet in the course of the book, the furthest she goes is to Box Hill. We know she's never been to the seaside. She just doesn't go anywhere much. But the other thing in Chapter 4, this is where you first see Emma's manipulation of Harriet, which isn't very nice. She doesn't say to Harriet, you must not marry Mr Mr. Martin. She says, of course, when Mr Martin marries, you won't want to be associated with his wife. And that's where this lovely bit where Harriet is trying to resist And she's saying, but I I want to stay friends with the Martin girls. Perhaps I won't meet his wife if she is. You know, Emma is just nudging her into the direction Emma wants her to go. You know, you can get a bit appalled at the way she manipulates Harriet. Yeah. But on the other hand, all Emma's life, Mm. she's had to manipulate her father. She's had to foresee what he will think and jump ahead and think of a way of putting it. Mm. So this isn't sort of something new. Mm. It's something Emma's doing. Well, as Mr Knightley says in Chapter 5 when he's talking to Mrs Weston, Emma is used to being the smartest person in the room. Yes. Her father, Isabella, then Harriet when she takes up Harriet. Mr Knightley and Mrs Weston are really the only two people she's had close dealings with who are her intellectual equals. And she's been brought in contact with Jane Fairfax and she didn't like it. Yeah. But we don't know that yet. I really liked the chapter between Mrs Weston and Mr Knightley. Yes. Because you get such a lovely picture of Mr Knightley, but I, I also like the fact that they disagree. And I think on the whole... He's right and Mrs. Weston is wrong. Yeah. But I lo- really love the fact that at the end he says, well, when John and Isabella come, I'm going to talk to them about it because they'll agree with me. And then Mrs. Weston says, I don't think that's a good idea. And she convinces him. And I think that is really good and really subtle. Yeah. And just about the way the people are. Yeah. So what was your favourite sentence? My favourite sentence comes out of the Mr. Weston story. And 
I found it interesting that the tone she uses, there's a lot of similarity to her letters with all the backstories. It's almost as though she's writing to Cassandra. Yeah. The sentence comes after the one describing Mr. Weston's first marriage. The author says, Mrs. Weston, who was previously Miss Churchill, ought to have found more in it, for she had a husband whose warm heart and sweet temper made him think everything due to her in return for the great goodness of being in love with him. But though she had one sort of spirit, she had not the best. And what, you know, I found absolutely fascinating in that is you've got one sentence and you've got three different tones used Mm. in it. Mm. You've got the first one where she describes Mr. Weston's warm heart and sound temper which is just a generous, kindly description of him. It moves within three words into one of her acerbic, ironic reference to somebody else, sort of thing that she was always putting into the letters to Cassandra when she talks about for the great goodness of being in love with him. And then it moves on to something that is just straightforward censoriousness. Mm. Though she had one sort of spirit, she had not the best. Mm. I mean, we don't look at her sentences very often like that, but for some reason this one jumped out at me. Mm. Anyway, yours. Well, mine is, there was a strange rumour in Highbury of all the little Perrys being seen with a slice of Mrs Weston's wedding cake in their hands, but Mr Woodhouse would never believe it. And I think this actually gives you such a lovely picture of Mr Perry Yes. Who, um, until John Mullen pointed it out, I hadn't realised Mr. Perry never actually speaks in the entire book. Yes. Everything we know about Mr. Perry is filtered through Mr. Woodhouse. Yes. But this is, you're right near the start of the book, this is where we learn that the Mr. Perry we see through Mr. Woodhouse's eyes is not actually the real Mr. Perry. And when she says there was a strange rumour, you know that she doesn't think it was a strange rumour. <laughs> Mr. Woodhouse thinks it's a strange rumour and he doesn't believe in it. Mr. Perry is probably, Mr. Woodhouse is one of his best customers, patients, whatever you call it. So like everyone else, he just sort of says what will keep Mr. Woodhouse happy. But then he goes away and he lives his life the way he wants to live his life. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So the character we're talking about today is Mr. Woodhouse. Because as I think we said earlier, We learn practically everything we need to know about him in these first five chapters of the book. Did you want to start? Well, the first question I feel with Mr Woodhouse is, is he what you'd call simple or is he senile? And my view is that he is really very limited. Jane Austen makes that quite clear. She said, having been a valetudinarian all his life, without activity of mind or body. And then later, she says, his talents would not have recommended him at any time. See, I kind of think it's both. He's always been limited, but I do think he is undergoing some form of cognitive decline. And I'm not going to try and, even if I knew the medical stuff, which I don't, I don't see there's any point in trying to analyse, is it Alzheimer's, is it dementia, has he had a mini-stroke? That's by the by. The thing is, 
you get all this evidence in the book of his limitations. You know, he's so forgetful that Emma says, you know, we've already agreed that we'll go and visit them every day and James will drive us. And then he says, but James won't want to. And she says, yes, but he will because his daughter's there. You feel there's a conversation they've already had 17 times. Oh, and the card games he plays. Yeah. He plays quadrille. We never hear him playing whist. Yeah. Which and is what plays, the other men play. He plays he, backgammon with Emma. He, I mean, are these games that an intelligent 10-year-old can play? Yes. You know, they probably are. Yeah. He's always been limited. His wife was probably the more intelligent one of the two. Well, but I also don't think the Mr Woodhouse we see now could have attracted a superior wife because he is just too needy. I have my own backstory for it, particularly for the marriage, is that from childhood he's obviously been so limited. He's got parents who devote themselves to him. I mean, terrible things could happen to people of property like that. But the backstory I'm seeing is that they put up with him and they indulge him, so they're devoted to him. And then as he's coming up into his late 30s, his early 40s, his parents are getting older and they're worried. They've got to have somebody to look after him and they find him a poor relation wife. You know, she's a clever woman. She's got no money. She hasn't got much future. She's known to be a loving person. They persuade her to marry him. I mean, this was actually done. Mm. And I've got sort of interested in how the whole money business goes and the leaving of money. So in my backstory, these parents who were so concerned and found him a wife, they also went to a lot of trouble to make sure all that Woodhouse money is tied up completely. Yeah. That it's all in trust. Yeah. And he has good trustees. Yeah. That does actually make sense. Well, I mean, as far as I know, it is one of the things that truly devoted people could do. But, of course, the other thing about him is he has limitations. He's profoundly infuriating. But beside that, he is a lovely person. He he does actually care about James and the horses. And that kind of sweet thing about he wants to put out lovely food for everybody, but then he doesn't want them to eat it. Yes, And the old ladies of the village, now maybe they like coming because they know they're going to get good food even if he doesn't want to eat it. But but that whole society is so good to him. He's lived in that town. They've been the most important people in that town. And the whole town knows how how you behave to him. I mean, that's one of the fascinating things with Frank Churchill is that he tries to buy into that. Mm. and gets it wrong, Yeah, you know, when he's saying, oh, somebody could go and open a window yes. behind the... Yeah, which and, scares him. Yes, and the whole thing is you don't scare Mr Woodhouse. And, it's all about <laughs> soothing him because he's very, very easily agitated. But that is why I think the one chapter later in the book that is so important about Mr Woodhouse, it shows you so much, is that chapter when John Knightley and Isabella are there. And John Knightley has that huffy bit about, well, if if Mr Perry can tell me how to take my wife and five children 150 miles for no more expense than 40 miles, I'm happy to do it. But that was actually where I started to think he started out limited, but he is in fact declining because the people who have been there all along know how to manage him, whereas John and Isabella are putting their foot in it. Now, 
the, the counterside to that, of course, is Isabella has her own limitations and John is kind of grumpy. But I did wonder if maybe he's declined more and so they haven't developed quite the right tactics to deal with it. Oh, well, you might be right that he's getting worse. Yeah. Just one thing. How do you compare his intelligence with Mr Rushworth's? That is a good question. There's probably not a huge amount of difference in intelligence, but in personality. Mr Rushworth has a pettiness about him, whereas Mr Woodhouse has a gentleness and kindness about him. But again, with Mr Rushworth, we've got a protective mother, though you know, she's yeah. probably in denial. Yeah. I was actually doing some Googling about Mr Woodhouse and cognitive decline, and I actually found a few articles. They are all taking the view that he is undergoing progressive decline, that this is a newer thing. But a thing that they all raise, which I hadn't really thought much about, is the effect that it has on Emma and how we see it, her managing it and what it says about her. I think everything they say in these articles applies regardless of whether you think he was always like this or it's a recent yeah, Whether thing. you think it's been going on 40 or 50 years or whether it, yeah. it's something that Emma has had to learn yeah. in the last 10 years or so. Yeah. So the first one I found, this is from 1995. It's in Psychiatric Bulletin by Jean Harris Hendricks. And it's called Mental Health by Jane Austen. It's quite a short article. It comments that the lives of relatives are constrained in ways in which they do not recognise. Emma is held to her home by her father's anxiety, a leash which prevents her from being away for more than two hours at a time, which of course is a reference to a line in the book. Mm. But it also talks about how from Jane Austen, we learn what researchers on psychiatric care tell us today. A pleasant and congenial environment large or small in scale, requires skill and knowledge. So it's talking about the importance of caregiving for people who struggle. If one thinks about it, probably that was part of really what Miss Taylor was expected to do as well as yeah. educate the two girls to educate them in the care of their father. Mm. Now, the next article I found, which is from 2009, and it's by... Margaret Morganroth Gullet, or Gullet, I'm honestly not sure how you pronounce her name, mm. and it's called Annals of Caregiving. Does Emma Woodhouse's father suffer from dementia? And it has dementia in inverted commas. And like I said, I'm reluctant to try and start putting modern medical labels on his condition, but be that as it may, I do think she makes some really good points in this article. And the one that really, really struck me is where she says, Perhaps the most significant marker of his condition can be deduced not from his behaviour or speech, but from hers. Emma's kind and adroit treatment of her father's obsessive preoccupations is an almost unnoticed but immensely important aspect of the novel. And I think that is so true. Actually, I haven't really noticed it properly, how good Emma is. Mm. That has changed my view of Emma. I didn't like the way she was going on and she seemed so conceited. And now you feel, look, after what she does for her father, you could almost forgive her all the sort of silliness and conceit. You can really feel it's relief to a girl who's giving up so much for her father. Mm. Now, the third article is from 2015, published in the New York Times, and it's called Jane Austen's Guide to Alzheimer's, 
again, putting a label I'm not entirely comfortable with, by Carol J. Adams. And again, I'm just going to read out a couple of quotes that really struck me as highlighting things I hadn't thought of before. She says, The novel asserts that Emma had little to distress or vex her, yet describes many distressing and vexing events. Emma is parenting her parent and has been doing so for quite some time. And then she says, Emma is one huge peon to caregiving, depicting its hardships, demands and frustrations. Emma's apparent freedom consists instead of constrained activities and parceled out time. Mr Woodhouse is always at home waiting for her. In one survey, a third of caregivers reported being responsible around the clock for someone with Alzheimer's. Like Emma, they are lucky if they have two hours to get out. She has to nip back from various places to check on him. and mm. You almost start to wonder at what Miss Taylor felt she was doing in leaving Emma to all this. They used to be able to share the care of Mr Woodhouse. I think Miss Taylor has to feel that Emma is now an adult and Miss Taylor is entitled to step away and have her own life and she hasn't stepped very far. No. The last of these articles is from 2016, written by Dr Cheryl Kinney. It's called Mr Woodhouse and What Matters in the End. And it does point out there are so many instances of Emma manipulating the environment for the comfort of her father and they are arranged so cleverly in the story that we barely notice them as claims on Emma. And I think that's true. I kind of thought there were two ways you could view Mr Woodhouse. One of them is to look at his good points, you know, his kindness, his gentleness, and to be indulgent of his limitations. In Talking of Jane Austen, G.B. Stern has a chapter on what she calls chumps, people who are usually a little vague, ingenuous, deeply earnest in their statements and deeply honest. Chumps do no harm. And she has Mr Woodhouse as her favourite chump. She also has Harriet Smith, doesn't she, yeah. as one of the chumps. Yeah, she, she's got other chumps as well, including Harriet Smith. I always kind of went along with that point of view, although I have always been more irritated by Mr Woodhouse than she was. Yes. But what I'm now seeing is when she says chumps do no harm, this view that we should look at his good points, it does miss this enormous burden that he's putting on Emma. And then... The other way I used to think you could see him was that it was sort of a horror story of the tyranny of the weak. But in this book, we do have an example of conscious manipulation through weakness, which is Mrs. Churchill over Frank. That yeah. is not what we're seeing with Mr. Woodhouse. Not at all. No. So what these articles really brought home to me is that if you look at Mr. Woodhouse in this really negative light, and if you see him as exerting all this power over Emma, then that's actually quite insulting and quite demeaning to Emma. And by extension, it's insulting and demeaning to all the caregivers in the world then and now. Because I've come to agree with all these articles, and I think the novel really is positioning Emma as a caregiver. And as Margaret Gallette says, it's a peon to caregivers. It's showing all the difficulties and the limitations that looking after her father is putting on Emma. But it's also showing that she does this extremely well and she does it completely willingly. She's uncompromising about it. And I just think for all of Emma's faults, and she has them, this is a truly admirable aspect of her that I missed. 
you know, for years and years and years, I totally missed this aspect exactly of it. Exactly the same with me, that somehow this time round, because we're thinking about it in detail, yeah. from two different angles, we've come at it, seeing what we think Mr Woodhouse is like. Yeah. And, yeah, just Mr Woodhouse isn't just a comic character. You could say an important part of his role in the book is to show this wonderful side of Emma. Which allows you to forgive all her silly blunders and her conceit and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I started off planning in the historical section to talk about boarding schools and Harriet Smith, but I found that I needed to take a sideways bulge at one point to cover what education meant to girls like Emma. Mm -hmm. But to begin with the boarding schools, when we were discussing Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice, we discovered that Jane Austen doesn't think much of some of their products. (laughs) Now in the first chapter of Emma, Jane Austen outlines what she dislikes about them by telling us what Mrs Goddard's school was not as well as what it was. Mm -hmm. What Jane Austen writes is, Mrs Goddard was the mistress of a school, not of a seminary or an establishment or anything which professed in long sentences of refined nonsense to combine liberal acquirements with elegant morality upon new principles and new systems and where young ladies for enormous pay might be screwed out of health and into vanity. But a real, honest, old-fashioned boarding school where a reasonable quantity of accomplishments were sold at a reasonable price. Jane Austen's, it seems, is pro-Mrs Goddard and anti the more expensive schools. She was not alone in this view. I've mentioned before that in 1801, Jane Austen's fellow novelist Mariah Edgeworth had given her views on girls' boarding schools. And in her tale, The Good French Governess, she tells us how Mrs Fanshawe, a card-paying lady, had placed her daughter at a boarding school in London, the expense of which was its chief recommendation. Miss Fanshawe had learned to speak French passably, to read a little Italian, to draw a little, to play tolerably well upon the pianoforte and to dance as well as many other young ladies. She had been sedulously taught a sovereign contempt for whatever was called vulgar at the school where she was educated. But as she was profoundly ignorant of everything but the routine of that school, She had no precise idea of propriety. She only knew what was thought vulgar or genteel at Suxbury House and the authority of Mrs Suxbury, for that was the name of her schoolmistress, she quoted as incontrovertible upon all occasions. That sounds exactly like what you were saying about Lady Middleton. Yes, a memory of that must have been at the back of my mind when we were talking about that. Yeah. Anyway, though Jane Austen and Mariah Edgeworth have this low opinion of boarding schools, there are modern researchers who see this as unfair. Marjorie Theobald, in her book Knowing Women, 
has argued that not all boarding schools were as frivolous and narrow as these two novelists suggested. The regime being satirised here, she argues, was a watered-down version of what was provided in the really expensive seminaries of London, Bath and Brighton, the ones patronised by the nobility and the upper gentry. There were plenty of teenage girls in cultivated families who, like the Dashwood sisters, wanted to develop their skills in the arts, or like the Bingley sisters were keen on modern languages and who wanted better teaching than their governesses could give. The parents of the girls who wanted this sort of extra education might find a master in a nearby town who'd visit them regularly in their homes. And there were many men who made their living in this way, but they were not necessarily very good at the art they were teaching. As a result, at least by the middle of the 1700s, various entrepreneurial women discovered that if they set up boarding schools in centres like London, Bath and Brighton, they could often provide the services of gifted artists and musicians who were prepared to give lessons on their premises. In fact, by Jane Austen's time, teaching in these schools provided a day job for many quite distinguished artists and musicians. So by the early 1800s, wealthy cultivated parents had come to believe that this was essential training for their daughters and they were prepared to pay quite substantially for it. For example, the future feminist and animal rights activist Frances Power Cobb, whose father owned a large estate just outside Dublin, was sent in her early teens to a boarding school at Brighton at a total cost of £750 per annum. That sounds enormous. Yes. That's what Edward and Eleanor were living on when they first got married. Well, that's what apparently they paid. Much of this sort of money went on paying the masters for their services. But the mistresses of these schools also offered a basic service, what was called an English education. This was a girl's education to be contrasted with the boy's classical education. And this, Marjorie Theobald suggests, was certainly not confined to the seminaries. During the 1700s, the period of the Enlightenment, the most advanced books on history, philosophy and science were being written in contemporary languages rather than Latin and read and discussed by cultivated gentlemen. These are presumably the kinds of books that Austen heroes like Mr Darcy and Mr Knightley, men who cared about building up their libraries, are buying and reading. But of course these books could also be read by intelligent women. And during the 18th century, various groups of well-read women began to suggest that intelligent men might like this sort of women as their wives and that therefore this was what girls should be studying. And it seems that the well-read men in Jane Austen agreed with them. Darcy argued that an accomplished woman must yet add something more substantial in the improvement of her mind by extensive reading. And Mr Knightley 
approved of the list of serious reading that Emma drew up in her teens, even though she never actually read them. <laughs> Yet, well, as Marjorie Theobald points out, many of the mistresses of these top boarding schools came from cultivated, even scholarly families and claimed that they, following the systems prescribed by some blue-stocking guru, would introduce their students to the culture of the Enlightenment. Thackeray made fun of these claims in his portrait of a Regency boarding school when he says that Miss Pinkerton had been a great friend of Dr Johnson, the great lexicographer. And Jane Austen's references to how they professed to teach on these new principles and systems was another reference to this practice. Stripped of its pretensions, this was nevertheless the kind of education that highly qualified governesses like Miss Taylor offered girls from the serious-minded gentry, like Emma and Isabella, and probably also what the Campbells, who adopted Jane Fairfax, introduced their daughter and her too. Though, of course, you're actually going to be talking in more detail about governesses in a later episode this season. Yes, yes. But if this was the top of the spectrum, Jane Austen seems to be suggesting that what was offered at Mrs Goddard's was the unpretentious other end of the scale. And she seems to think it is quite appropriate the sweet-natured, not very bright girls like Harriet Smith to be educated in this way. So what was Mrs Goddard's school like? Well, to start with, accommodation must have been pretty tight. There were 40 girls, 20 couple, to be accommodated in Mrs Goddard's large house, but it probably wasn't much bigger than Hartfield. If so big. And it's got the 40 girls, it's got Mrs Goddard, it's got the three teachers, it's got the parlour boarder and all the servants they need to look after them. Mm. Where did they squeeze in? Mm. <laughs> On the other hand, Mrs Goddard's school had quite a reasonable pupil-teacher ratio, one to ten. And so if the teachers knew what they were doing, and they probably did, at least with the younger girls, they must have offered a fairly good basic grounding in the English education. Mm. Harriet Smith seems to have been taught to speak grammatically and without a regional accent. Which makes her a good comparison to Lucy Steele. Yes, that's mm. right. And she's been taught elegant handwriting. There also seems to have been sort of some minimal aspiration to high culture. Collecting riddles was actually perhaps quite a good way of persuading romantic teenagers to search through anthologies like Elegant Extracts. On the other hand, the fashionable Gothic romances, like The Romance of the Forest and Children of the Abbey, which seemed to have been circulating in the school, were definitely not high culture. Though they probably weren't read by the Knightleys and the Westons. They probably were read by the Perrys and the Coles and the Coxes. Mm. So it was still mm. adapting those girls to the society they'd be moving into. Mm. Similarly with the accomplishments taught, which probably didn't rise above Mr Bingley's netting purses and painting tables level. <laughs> the only master we ever hear of is the old writing master, and Harriet Smith doesn't seem to have learnt music or painting, 
We are told, though, that Mrs Goddard's neat parlour was hung around with fancy work, and it seems likely that these were the accomplishments the girls took home with them. Hmm. There was, however, another aspect of the boarding school training that probably helped Harriet a lot to fit into Highbury society, and this was the training in deportment and company manners. According to Mariah Edgeworth, it was impossible not to perceive that Miss Fanshawe, that's her boarding school girl, that Miss Fanshawe's whole soul was intent upon her manner of holding her head and placing her elbows as she came into the room. Her person had undergone all the ordinary and extraordinary tortures of backboards, collars, stocks, dumbbells, etc. And quite likely these were exactly what the teachers at Mrs Goddard's could train the girls in. Even if Harriet's training was not as rigorous as this, she had no doubt learnt, as the later novelist Mrs Ewing put it, not to jerk and toss and bounce and fuss and fluster when she got out of a carriage or came into a room. And once Emma had cured her of her schoolgirl's giggle, she could pass without remark in the company Mrs Goddard introduced her into. Just following on from that discussion of education, I think I might mention here that you recently gave a recorded presentation to the Charlotte N. Young Society on education later in the 19th century, and I've got it on my YouTube channel. So if anyone is interested, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. So for the pop culture section, I'm just going to start by giving an overview of all the pop culture versions of Emma. With all of the books, there have been adaptations of them done on film pre-1970, mostly for television, but most of these have been lost. But since 1970, there have been more adaptations of Emma than any other Jane Austen novel. What, even more than Pride and Prejudice? Yes. Since 1970, there have actually been five productions of Emma. There was one in 1972, a BBC six episodes starring Doran Godwin and John Carson. Nothing in the 80s, unusually. Every other Jane Austen, the BBC did one in the 1980s, but not Emma. But then in mid-1990s, which was suddenly a big boom because there was the 1995 Pride and Prejudice, there was a Sense and Sensibility the same year, there was a Persuasion the same year. In 1996, there were actually two adaptations of Emma. There was a Miramax cinema release starring Gwyneth Paltrow and Jeremy Northam. And then there was also an ITV telemovie starring Kate Beckinsale and Mark Strong. Then in 2009, there was another BBC production, this time four episodes, starring Romola Garai and Johnny Lee Miller. And then much more recently in 2020, There was a big-budget production starring Anya Taylor-Joy and Johnny Flynn. So, as I said, five adaptations of the book, which is more than any other Jane Austen. As well as these adaptations, there have been some modernisations, and the absolute most well-known and beloved of the modernisations was the 1995 film Clueless, which sets it in a high school. It actually may have been the first, but was certainly the most high profile of a series of 1990s high school movies based on classic literature. It became a thing. Right. So Clueless came out one year before the two 1996 adaptations. 
then in 2010, there was a Bollywood movie called Aisha, which I haven't seen, starring Sonam Kapoor and Abhay Dale. And then while all of the others have had a web series version, yes. Emma has actually had two web series versions. All right. In 2013, there was Emma Approved, which was done by the same group that had done the Lizzie Bennet Diaries and even had some crossover. Yes. And then in 2017, there was one called The Emma Agenda. On top of that, of course, there have been book modernizations. There have been many of them. So I'm not going to go through even the list I've compiled here. I'm just going to mention a couple. First of all, I've talked before about the Austen Project where they got big-name existing authors yes. to do modern versions. They didn't do one of Mansfield Park, but they have done one of Emma by Alexander McCall-Smith, who wrote the number one ladies' detective agency. Yes. And the only other thing I wanted to comment on is there have been three modernizations of Emma called If I Loved You Less, which of course comes out of Knightley's line in the proposal scene by three different people. So I will try and read some of these, but at this stage I haven't read any of them. Yes. Now, in terms of continuations, you know, sequels to the book, again, there have been quite a number. Possibly the first is actually that little short snippet in one of the Talking of Jane Austen books where G.B. Stern wrote a seven years later piece about Emma. Then in 1988, Reginald Hill wrote one called Poor Emma. There have been a few others. Um, in 1996, there were actually two, one by Emma Tennant, who had written a couple of Pride and Prejudice sequels, and then one by Rachel Billington. And then lastly, Variations. There have actually been a number of people rewriting the story of Emma from a different perspective. Of another character. Yes. Now, I remember one of the first of these I ever read was called Jane Fairfax. I couldn't remember who'd written. I just remember reading it. And so I looked it up and I found one by Naomi Royd Smith, written in 1940. And I've actually ordered a copy and I am going to reread it. There's also been one from the point of view of Mrs. Goddard called The Visit to Highbury, which yes. could be interesting. Then Diana Birchall wrote In Defence of Mrs. Elton, which I do mean to reread. I remember yes. it as being really funny. She was part of a group that was reading Emma, I think, and she got not upset, but she decided to respond to the people who were totally down on Mrs. Elton yes. and give it from a Mrs. Elton point of view. Yeah. And then lastly, Amanda Grange has written Mr. Knightley's diary. She's done diaries of all the main male characters. So because there are all of these different versions and in particular so many different adaptations, I've decided I'm not going to do what I've done in, in our previous series where I've tried to look at the chapters we've covered in all the different adaptations. Because yes. if I did that, I'd have like 20 seconds to spend on each one. So what I'm going to do instead is for each episode, I'm going to look at just one version, starting with the adaptations, then the modernizations, and then I'll sort of look a bit more briefly at some of the written versions. Yes. So for this episode, I'm going to be talking about the 1972 BBC production with Doran Godwin and John Carson. It was six episodes of 45 minutes, the longest version except for the web series. Yes. As with all of the BBC versions of the 1980s, this one from 1972 more or less follows the plot from the book. It has a lot of dialogue from the book. It doesn't have the huge budget and the lush scenery and settings of some of the later versions, but I thought overall it was actually a pretty good adaptation. The actress who played Emma, 
Doran Godwin. She was 22 years old, so she's pretty close to the right age. Unfortunately, John Carson, who played Mr Knightley, was 45, so he was rather too old. But I did think both Emma and Mr Knightley were good. Emma, she did get that control and then realise what's gone wrong and sort of berating yes. herself over it. I thought she captured that really well. I thought the Harriet actress was lovely. Mm. She wasn't played for broad comedy and she wasn't played as being monumentally stupid. What you really got was she was just very naive and very, very suggestible. She was really rather sweet. And every time she talked to Emma, pretty much every sentence had the words Miss Woodhouse in it. Oh, Miss Woodhouse, what do you think? Miss Woodhouse this, Miss Woodhouse that. Yeah. And she was very, very blonde and pretty. Emma was either a dark blonde or a light brunette. I'm not sure how you phrase it. Jane Fairfax was very dark. I also thought Jane Fairfax was very good because she was so, so reserved. You really couldn't see what she was thinking. But she also looked very tense for so much of the time and then relaxed a bit in the last episode. Mr Woodhouse I thought was also very good. The actor's name was Donald Eccles. What they were looking for when they cast him was they wanted someone who was quite fragile looking. So he was tall. He wasn't doddery. He was fussy without being played for broad comedy, which some of the later ones did. Yes. So I did think the casting and performances were very good. Now, one thing I'm going to pay attention to as I rewatch all of these is Knightley's proposal, because, of course, in the book we never hear Emma's response. It's that wonderful line, yeah. what did she say? She said what she should, a woman always does. In Mr Knightley's proposal, he finishes his proposal and then it cuts to Mr Woodhouse being almost frantic because Emma's still out and something terrible might have happened to her. And then it cut back to Emma and Mr Knightley and you know she's accepted. So I thought that was a way of not manufacturing dialogue that Jane Austen very deliberately hadn't included. I thought that was rather nice. Yes. Oh, the Box Hill scene was actually filmed at Box Hill. Yes. And they had to go there twice because the first day they went there, it was too windy and they couldn't film because everything was just blowing everywhere. All right. But it was nice to have it actually at Box Hill. I just now wanted to finish by mentioning a couple of changes they did make to the plot. After the ball scene when Knightley has danced with Harriet, Yes. the next morning you see Harriet sitting in the parlour at the school just daydreaming. Yes. Obviously having fantasies about herself and Mr Knightley. Then Mrs. Goddard comes in and asks her to take a message to Donwell Abbey and she is all excited about it. Yes. So we know from that point that she's developed a crush on Mr. Knightley and that happens before the scene where Frank Churchill rescues her. I think in the book we may fall into the same misapprehension Emma does, that it's Frank she's in love with. But in this we know that Emma is making a mistake. And after the Box Hill picnic, when Emma goes to visit Miss Bates, she explicitly apologises to her. And Miss Bates is lovely and says, oh, yeah, I don't remember you saying anything that offended me. But they clearly felt they wanted an explicit apology so you could really see Emma making steps to make up for what she has done wrong rather than just implicitly being nice to her. Yes. So, as I said, it was possibly a little bit slow, a little bit static, but I did think all the performances were very good. I thought it was a nice production. I suppose one thing they didn't do that some of the later productions did, and I mentioned this already, is they didn't go for broad comedy. They went for gently amusing. Yes. Yeah, they didn't strip the comedy from it, not by any means. 
But they didn't beef it up to broad slapstick or anything like yes. that. Yes. Oh, well, good. You've been listening to the Reading Jane Austen podcast with me, Harriet. And me, Ellen. In our next episode, we'll be looking at chapters 6 to 10 of Emma. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website, readingjaneaustin.com. You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us next time.